I want to wish you a happy holiday, October 31st. It's one of the most important days in our calendar, Reformation Day. A 33-year-old obscure monk sometime during the day of October 31st, 1517, nailed a list of 95 grievances on the church door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. I remind you that uh, Luther at the time, Martin Luther, he worked for the church. <laughs> it was his employer and his passion. He listed these 95 grievances, most of them having to do with the very corrupt practice of the church selling indulgence to people, often poor people, to get their sins forgiven. Totally, totally uh, speaking for the gospel, Luther aired it out and overnight became a front page news all over Germany. It's a great story. It's, in my view, why October 31st is a special day. And actually, it's why you're in the seats this morning that you are. If it weren't for this cheeky monk, we would not be here. I want to bring to your attention the first of the 95 thesis, because it is a word today for Waterstone. Here's the first one. I'd like you to read it out loud with me. It's essential. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance. Today, we're going to talk about repentance. It's interesting, in the letters to the seven churches, as we've shared, there were two of them that were under severe persecution, and Jesus has no confrontation with them, only encouragement. Philadelphia, whom you'll hear next week, and then earlier when we talked about Smyrna. Those were suffering churches, intense persecution, and Jesus builds them up. The other five churches, Jesus has words with. And there's things that the church are doing that Jesus engages and he speaks against. And what's interesting to me is that to each of the five churches that Jesus confronts, it's the word repent that appears in every single case. Repent. It's an important word. It's an important word for waterstone. And today, we're going to talk about what repentance means and then how to get started what it means, how to start repentance. Why did Jesus call the five churches to repent? Well, in the letters, what Jesus is actually doing, and this is a great strategy, is he's getting these churches to rise to the occasion. Rise to the occasion. Yes, as you've heard, as we've unpacked it week after week in the Revelation series, that uh, these churches were struggling. They had internal pressure where false teachers were saying, you don't need to worry about your sexuality or you don't need to worry about being involved in pagan feasts. Do what feels good to you and what keeps you connected to the things you need in life. Who cares about sexual ethics and partying? There's that internal pressure to compromise. And then there's the external pressure by the authorities. The Jewish authorities in the synagogues were persecuting the, the early church. But even more, the Roman authorities, as we've heard, were, were making it required that every person in the empire in these cities uh, say Caesar is Lord and offer incense to him and worship him as a god. So you have this internal pressure of compromise. You have this external pressure of conform to the authorities. And these churches needed to rise up to the occasion. And how are they going to do that? 
Jesus' strategy was this, that in chapter 1, he gave them a vision of who he is. A vision. Do you remember the vision in chapter 1? It talks about him having uh, hair that's white, white as snow, which means wisdom. That he's the fount of knowledge and he knows how to use it in every person's life. He is wisdom. And then it talks about eyes of fire that are blazing and Jesus... There is nothing that he does not see. His presence penetrates every part of our lives. And then it talks about a mouth with a double-edged sword coming out, which means Jesus speaks truth. He defines reality. And then it talks about his voice being like the sound of rushing waters, which means unstoppable power, that Jesus is the one who's pushing history into existence and for his purposes to that day. This is the vision of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if you hold on to this vision of me, you will rise to the occasion. So the question is, how do we keep that vision of Jesus in front of us? How do we keep rising to the occasion because we're empowered by that Jesus? The answer, in a word, repent. Repent. So in a few moments, I want to unpack that word repent and then talk about how it starts. But first, let's go to Sardis, shall we? Let me just cut to the chase with Sardis. Yeah, it had its Acropolis, blah, blah, blah. It had its, it's the thing it was known for. It was the first city in the ancient world to mint coins of gold and silver, blah, blah, blah. What Sardis was known for was being sleepy. Sleepy. Sardis sits on top of a 1,500-foot precipice that on three sides was a sheer rock wall. Three sides. It was an impenetrable military fortress. It was impregnable. There's only one way you could get up to the city of Sardis, and that's on this gentle slope. You only have one side to guard. But what happened to Sardis? Not once, but twice in its history. At night, while everyone was asleep, Two sneak attacks where enemies came in and captured the city. The second time, 15 men. Sleepy Sardis. Go ahead. Would you yawn with me? Just get it out of the way. That background, let's read it, shall we? It's very interesting now how Jesus confronts the church at Sardis. It's on the screens in your chair Bible 992. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I don't know exactly what those mean. I know your deeds And you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! (laughs) Sleeping Sardis. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet, 
You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Before we talk about repentance, just a brief comment here. What's important to note in verse 1 is that Sardis thinks they are alive. In fact, the text literally says, you call yourselves life. Could it be that sometimes Jesus and us have very different definitions of what makes a church alive? Sardis thought it was alive. They had good deeds. They were doing right. My guess is the seats were full. The budget needs were being met. They would be in the top 100 churches in Outreach Magazine. They would be doing good deeds throughout their, their community, and their community would miss them if they ceased to exist. They were doing everything right, they thought. Could it be that Jesus has a different definition of what a healthy church looks like? I think it gets to that word, repent. A healthy church is a church that is repenting. So, let's unpack what that means. A repenting church. Let's go to verses 2 and 3. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. In these two verses, we have what a repenting church looks like. And I've, we've highlighted there are five commands in these two verses, five imperatives as to what repentance looks like. I want to briefly walk through them and then really drill down a little bit about what repentance looks like. Wake up is the first part, and we're going to end with that. That's the beginning of repentance. I want to come back to that. Second, strengthen what remains. The word strengthen here means an inner resolve. It's not necessarily about physical strength, though I think physical strength can be related, but it's more about what's inside and what makes you strong. It's mind over matter. It is a resolve to do what you need to do. My dad uh, was a 20-year Air Force veteran, and uh, I love to hear him talk about his time in boot camp in 1960. He tells the, the story that on the first day he was there, they got him up in the morning at oh dark hundred, and they're all standing there, and this drill instructor is just screaming at him, boys, boys, what will get you through basic is not your legs, but oh, we're going to use your legs, and you're going to run. What will get you through basic is not your arms, but oh, we're going to use your arms, and you will do push-ups. Boys, what will get you through basic is your gut. Oh, we will use your gut. You will do sit-ups. But boys... What will get you through basic is the greatest muscle that you have, your mind. And if you just think every hour that you will get through this hour, you will get through basic. That's 
the resolve. It is a strengthening of mind. It's mind over matter. It's if you've ever climbed a 14er, once you're up above 13,000 feet, it's just the next step. Resolve. That's what repentance means. And so it's that strength. And he says, remember what you have received and heard. He's talking there about the stories of Jesus. At this point, when John writes around 90 AD, the church already has the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even Peter and Paul. It's interesting, in 2 Peter 3, Peter writes about the epistles of Paul, and he calls them, interestingly, Scripture, capital S, Scripture. So already the church is having this canon of Scripture being formed. And all of the New Testament is the life story of Jesus Christ. And so what John is saying is what it means to repent is that you keep going back to the story of Jesus. Who he was, what he did, his claims, especially his death and resurrection. You go back to everything you've heard and received. And then... The third, hold it fast, it's simply the word obey. So get this, you make up your mind, you absorb the story of Jesus in your life, and then you become Jesus. You obey. All of that is what it means to repent. The word repent simply means to turn around. So you find yourself cruising through your life, and you look up one moment, and you realize, oh, I am not on the right track here. And you turn around and you go on God's track where Jesus is. That's what repent means, to turn around. You realize you're going the wrong direction and you run towards Jesus. Now, the best definition of repentance I've ever heard is from one who preached repentance, John the Baptist. He put it this way. Many of you know this uh, statement. He said, he must increase, and I must decrease. What repentance means is making more and more room in your life for Jesus. You're always examining your life, always evaluating, what am I doing that I don't really need to be doing so that I can get more Jesus into my life? A church that is healthy, alive, is one that's repenting which means it's always asking itself, what can we do to get more Jesus into our community life and into our individual lives? Now, I want to drill down a little bit more on this idea of repentance and what he must increase and I must decrease means. I think it means two essential things. And I'm warning you, these are hard things. You're not going to like me too much these next 10 minutes. Or, yeah, I'm not, it's Jesus. It's Jesus saying it. Let's put it that way. The first essential step of repentance for our examination is this. Jesus needs to be the greatest effort of your life. These are five imperative verbs. And this idea of repentance is it, it needs to be something that's very active in our lives, that we're doing all the time. Repentance is not just once when you become a Christian, you change your ways, and then you go on and never revisit it again. Repentance needs to happen every hour. You're never done with repentance. Luther was right. It's the entirety of the Christian life. Every hour you repent, which means you look up, what am I doing? What do I not need to be doing? And you run to Jesus. 
It's never over. It's the most active activity of our lives. It's essential effort. We are always repenting. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me give you some ideas, Uh, creative ideas. Because the only way we're going to see the vision of Jesus that he gave us in chapter 1 is if we're always repenting. And a church that rises to the occasion is a church that sees that vision. And repentance is how we see that vision. So we're always repenting. So what does that look like? Okay. The best uh, idea I've heard about repentance comes from a dear saint at Waterstone who just died and is now one of the great witnesses watching us today. Her name was Kathy Wall. She passed away about a month ago. Kathy... If you knew her, she showed up at everything. She worked in our children's ministry. She worked in our seniors' ministry and everything in between. The other thing about Kathy is she showed up at every class Waterstone ever offered. Every class. For a while, I thought it was because she liked me. But then I asked her, Kathy, why do you come to every single thing that we offer at Waterstone? And she said this, and this is repentance. She said, a while ago, Jesus gave me three words for my life. Try new things. Try new things. That's repentance. You see, left to ourselves as individuals or as a church, if we don't have the outside energy of the Jesus vision coming into our lives, we're going to suffer from entropy. Second law of thermodynamics, every system, every life without an infusion of outside energy is prone to decline and decay. So unless we have the Jesus vision in new and fresh ways, trying new things to get Jesus into our lives, we are going to become dull and stale and frankly, asleep and dead We need the Jesus vision, and we get the Jesus vision from trying new things. Kathy said that as she got older. She said, I don't want to become an old person who just sits around. Try new things. All right, another example. Try new things. The greatest effort of our lives. Frank Laubach was a missionary in the Philippines for most of his life. He wrote this interesting book because while he was a missionary, he was always trying new spiritual disciplines. And he invented one. He called it the game of minutes. You can Google it. It's a very interesting exercise. Frank Laubach, the game of minutes. What he tried to do for one year was for every minute that he was awake, he tried to out loud or in his mind say the name Jesus. Every minute that he was awake, he tried to say the name Jesus. He writes about it in a book called The Game of Minutes. He says, you know, I seldom made it through an hour where I got every 60 minutes of Jesus. But after a year of trying, he never felt closer to Jesus. Try new things. You need the Jesus vision into your life. It comes through repentance so that you stay dynamic. Try new things. How about about one more? Maybe two. Philosopher, Christian, Stephen Evans. He says, nothing that I've seen in all of creation testifies to me that God is real more than banana cream pie. 
Try new things. Eugene Peterson, one of my heroes, great writer, he talks about the time that uh, his oldest son and his wife became pregnant. They were students at Princeton Seminary. So Eugene and his wife Jan, they're driving from Maryland to New Jersey to go visit, and they had this great weekend, and everyone was happy and full of joy. You know, first grandchild, blah, 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 except Eugene. Eugene and Jan are driving back home, and Eugene confesses to his wife, you know, I, I just don't get it. I, I'm not excited. It's so far away yet, and it's a little baby, and I just don't get it. I'm trying to be excited, but I'm not. I have learned over the years that if you want to grow in wisdom and stature, you marry a wife named Jan. And Jan says to Eugene, you don't get it because you've never been pregnant. Eugene says, thanks a lot. That's really helpful. And then Jan says, Eugene, build a cradle. Let me read to you what happened next. Build a cradle. When I got home, I went to the public library and found pictures of cradles. I decided on an early American hooded cradle, sketched out plans, went to a specialty wood shop, and chose some Honduras mahogany. Most afternoons, I came home an hour or so early from my parish duties to my shop and worked on that cradle. I decided to finish it with applications of tongue oil. I worked on each piece of the cradle with the finest grade of sandpaper over and over. And I then went to steel wool over and over. Each application of tongue oil deepened the color. After several applications, it seemed like the wood glowed from within. I worked with each piece of the cradle, shaping it, holding it, rubbing it over and over and over, and all the time anticipating the baby that would be in that cradle over and over and over. And Jan's prescription worked. I got pregnant. Week after week, shaping that cradle, my hands and fingers working the wood over and over, anointing with the oil that set the mahogany on fire from within, I imagined the developing baby that would soon be swaddled in that cradle, praying in gratitude in anticipation for the life in our daughter-in-law's swelling womb. And by the time that cradle was ready, I was ready, prepared to receive new life. The church, Waterstone, is called to be a cradle that holds the baby to present to the world. What's your cradle? What's your effort for Jesus right now? Maybe you feel distant. What are you going to do? Try new things. What's your cradle for Jesus? Even as Christmas is coming now, how will you show him to the world from your heart? What will you do for him? It's the greatest effort of our life. Secondly, it's the greatest relationship of our life. Repentance means holding Jesus as the most important relationship in our lives. Okay, here's where it gets even a little harder. In fact, I just read this in my Bible reading this year, last week, Luke 14, and it still jolts and puts a lump in my throat. Luke 14, I think around verse 26, Jesus says this. 
if anyone would come after me, he must hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sister, and follow me. What does that mean? It does not mean that we are to actively hate our family. I mean, Jesus said that we're not even to hate our enemies. <laughs> we're to love our enemies. He's not talking about an active hate. What Jesus is talking about, write it down, is a comparative hate. What he means is this, that when people see the way that you love Jesus, every other relationship in your life looks like hate by comparison. Mm. Let me describe repentance this way. There are no ifs in the Christian journey. No ifs. By the way, I, I, it says if anyone, sometimes people read that verse and they think, well, that's good. So that means there can be Martin Luther and there can be people who go live in monasteries. They're the ones, you know, hate their father. No, if anyone would come. No second classes here. No, no peers of commitment. If anyone, all of us are being talked to there. This hate by comparison. It means that there's no if in the Christian journey. For instance, many of us say, well, I'll follow Jesus if my career thrives. Others of us say, I'll follow Jesus if I can keep my family together. Others of us say, I'll follow Jesus if my health holds. There are no ifs. And whatever you put behind one of those ifs is your Lord and Master and getting your repentance. There's no ifs. Jesus is the most important relationship of the believer's life. So, moment of meditation and self-exam here. I want to ask you, point blank, give you 30 seconds to think about it. Is Jesus the most important relationship in your life? Wake up. Wake up. Church is called to rise to the occasion. We rise to the occasion by seeing the vision of the glorious and exalted Jesus. And the way we keep our eyes on that vision is by continual repentance, trying new things, getting the Jesus vision into our lives. He must increase. I must decrease. It begins with a wake-up call. Wake up. Where are you? I've been thinking about this. What does this mean? to wake up. I mean, I don't think the believers in Sardis are not Christians. They're Christians, but it just looks like they're dead. And Jesus is kind of mixing his metaphors here to saying, you know, wake up, dead man. Wake up. You're acting like you're dead. Wake up. So what does a church look like that has fallen asleep? Simply this. 
A church that is asleep is being controlled by the wrong reality. Let me illustrate. Have you ever been in a deep sleep where you're off in dreamland and then something startles you, a knock at the door, or your spouse says, honey, honey, I just heard a noise. There's someone in the house. That's actually happened. And I, I'm just like, I was in dreamland. I'm trying to wake up. And I'm like, oh, I didn't hear anything. It's nothing, honey, just cereal. Go back to sleep. Different realities in play. Jan has heard something in the house. I was warm and comfortable in my reality and not wanting to wake up to another reality. And sometimes churches live in their own reality, missing out on the true reality. We are often controlled by the wrong reality. So individually, here's what that can look like. Some of you this morning walked in here and you are just crippled by worry. There's bad and hard things going on in your life. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be anxious, even fearful, but what I am saying is why is that worry have you debilitated, crippled? I mean, what happens is I want to say to you, wake up. Did you not see in the vision that Jesus has the white hair? He's the one who has all knowledge. He knows how every life will go and end. He has your life completely in his hands. He is wisdom itself. Wake up. Why are you letting worry make you so angry and you're destroying relationships? Why? It's because you're asleep. Wake up to the reality of Jesus. Some of you came in here this morning just dragging again your bags of shame and guilt. I want to say to you, wake up. Look at the cross. There's no one on that cross. Jesus died for your sins. They're gone. The only one holding on to your sins is you. Jesus forgives you. You are forgiven. Walk forward in love and grace and forgiveness. Wake up. You're holding on to the wrong reality if you're walking in guilt and shame. Some of you walked in here this morning just again struggling with self-control. I want to say to you, wake up. You are just sacrificing too many good things in your life because you think you need pleasure now when you don't understand that Jesus has promised you face-to-face -face intimacy with him, which is why you're seeking all these other things to begin with, but you will never get that true intimacy until you are face-to-face -face with Jesus. So hold on and quit messing up your life. Wake up. Hold out for the true beauty and reality that you want, and that's Jesus. Wake up. So you won't hear this in seminary, so I'm not going to charge you for this. But I'm convinced in any group like this, Christians fall into three categories. There are those who are wide awake, and thank goodness. You are awake. You are repenting. Jesus' vision has never been clear to you, and we need you in this church, and we need you talking. We need you bugging the pastors. We need you because you're alive. We need you. There's another group that is about to fall asleep. You've recently just stopped doing spiritual habits, things you know you should be doing. You, you, you use the excuse of busyness, but you know deep down everyone has the time to do what they really want to do. You're making excuses. You're falling asleep. Some of you are asleep. A third of you in this room are asleep. You need to wake up. Everyone's looking at you, they see your good works, they think you have it together, but you know inside, inside, you haven't been with Jesus in a long time. You know there's an emptiness and a dullness there, and it's about all you can do to drag yourself to church.
You're not even very interested. Wake up! Come to Jesus. Repent. What happens if you do? It's motivation by good. Verses 4 to 6. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will be like them dressed in white. I will never blot them, the name of that person, from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's good. It's good. Do you know that if you wake up and begin to practice repentance, that according to this promise, God's love and power is going to explode in your life? That's what it means. That's what you want. Wake up. So a prayer to wake up. We're going to put this prayer. I'd like you to pray it out loud with me. And then I want us to sing our closing song. And I'll set that up in a minute. But first, a prayer. Would you say it with me out loud? I hear thunder in your speech, O God. I see lightning in your acts. Storm through this soul of mine. Wake the sleeping parts of me. Raise the dead parts of me. Stand me on my feet, alert and praising in your presence.